Welcome to Farscape Friday, Episode 1. I'm Kay, here with my co-host Taz. Today we'll be discussing the Farscape episode premiere. Let's get started. The episode is called Premiere, which is, I don't know, I've always found a little bit hilarious, because I'm like, why didn't you just call it Pilot? <laughs> oh, I actually know the answer to that question. Yeah? They, it's called a premiere because they had already ordered the entire first season when um, and aired. So instead of doing a regular pilot where they have the pilot and they shop it around see if it gets, if it gets picked up. And if it doesn't get picked up, then it's just a pilot that never went anywhere. Because of the production costs for all the puppetry, they weren't going to do the show unless they already had a guarantee of a first season. And that's why the first episode is called a premiere instead of a pilot. Well, actually, that's really cool. The first episode, which is called Premiere, and which we have just learned the why, <laughs> um, <laughs> is... About astronaut slash scientist John Crichton, who gets swept up in an intergalactic prison break when his Farscape shuttle is sucked down a wormhole. That was the shortest introduction that I could think of for this episode. <laughs> that, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. I must say, watching the first opening, this is like a big blast from the past, because I can't remember the last time I rewatched the show. But all the science is so cringeworthy. And I'm like, no, no. <laughs> Which part? Like the <laughs> actual CGI? Well, no. It's just like there's some sort of electromagnetic wave. Well, you know, very much everything in space is an electromagnetic wave. It's called light. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So so if you're first time watching Farscape, um, just keep in mind that science isn't really their strength. They're really good storytellers, not so good at science. But that's okay. We love them anyway. Yes, we very much do love them anyway. Yeah, I definitely, I was kind of laughing when I was rewatching it just because of how far they went to try and explain why everybody sounds Australian. And they're like, oh, it's the ISA <laughs> instead of NASA because they clearly, I mean, I assume NASA, maybe you can enlighten me, but I assume that NASA has trademarked NASA. So. Oh, yeah. So yeah, I so assume they just can't say. If you say. want to use the NASA, <laughs> the, the NASA logo, you have to ask permission for that. And then no doubt get, did not give them permission to use it. So that's why they had to go with a NASA knockoff IASA, which stands for the <laughs> International Aeronautics and Space Administration of some sort of conglomerate that existed in 1999 of space travel that was still using the shuttle, which was clearly a NASA asset. Anyway. Hand wave, hand wave, hand wave. Point being, John Crichton has a really awesome experiment that he's going to go test out in space. And he goes up to do it, and then all hell breaks loose. And he gets sucked down a wormhole. And he Actually, gets sucked down a wormhole. Um, I'll be honest, I think that watching his ship get sucked down a wormhole, knowing what you know later, like knowing what goes on in later seasons... It was really fascinating for me because in later seasons, there's that whole subplot with like it having to be his specific ship that can wormhole jump, you know, and it and it being very much like about him and about his ship. And yet when you watch the premiere, it literally is super an accident. It's like his ship was in a car crash. And then in later seasons, probably because at that point, like three or four years in, you forget you know, mm -hmm. they've just, I think they just forgot that, no, it was actually very clearly an accident. 
Yeah, yeah, he had this experiment that he's doing is creating up some specific conditions in the atmosphere that interact with this random, it turns out to be a solar flare, our electromagnetic <laughs> wave. So the circumstances that having a solar flame flare that's time precisely to open the wormhole, that's that's definitely the accident part. And that's part of the whole setup of the show and actually how kind of the first episode unfolds. It's like so much randomness happening that yes, it's a story, things have to collide, but at the same time, there's no like rhyme or reason to it. He's just immediately thrown into this wormhole, um, which was gorgeous CGI, even now, still. Mm-hmm. I really like watching that. And then suddenly he's ejected into was an asteroid field and then there's suddenly these little ships whizzing by and then he's like staring around going canaveral uh where's earth and it's just this really great entry moment of someone just being completely thrown in over his head and it turns out that he ends up in the middle of a prison break which always just tickled me because this is like there's no order there's no captain kirk to the rescue or captain picard it's just chaos from the very get-go mm-hmm I think what's really interesting about that, and it's I think it's always going to be interesting to me, is how much John wants to hope. Do you know what I mean? Like the first time he meets Zan and Dargo after being drawn into their ship, there's this expression on his face of like wonder, you know, and he is so ready and he is going he's ready to meet them and he is so excited. And then it turns out that they're prisoners. <laughs> and there's like this horribly <laughs> awkward. Not just that, but they're like yeah, they're like lifers. They're literally prisoners that were being sent to like a life colony. And then and then his first interaction with them is basically Dargo taking him by the throat and slamming him into a wall. And then Zan ignores him. And then Rigel hits him in the face with his throne sled. <laughs> he does not exactly have an auspicious beginning with these guys. Oh, man, Rigel. Like, I know he's, I know people like hate him a lot, but... I think you'll never find a more condensed version of who Rigel is. Well, I mean, who he is for most of the series. Then that one moment where he sees Crichton and there's chaos and he goes and he goes up to Crichton and he's like, hey, I'll take care of you now. You take care of me later. Which is like Rigel being invested in their prison break because clearly he got them out of prison. But at the same yeah. time, Rigel playing all the possible angles. Like, yeah, if we get captured by this, you know, by the peacekeepers, I want to have an escape. You know, I want to have leverage kind of thing. Oh, man, I love yeah. Rachel. That's actually an interesting thing to say, because when I was um, kind of thinking over what I wanted to talk about today, I was thinking of thesis statements for the characters that kind of set up who they are and where they're going in the future arcs. And, you know, that one is, as you say, perfect for Rigel. He's like, thesis statements for each of the characters, right? And, like, how does the premiere set them up for the character arcs that we know are coming? I mean, some of them are a lot easier than others. Like, John's is very clear coming in as the fish out of water. And then Aaron's is very clear when we meet her starting from a place of lacking compassion and then going forward. But that's a really good one for Rigel. I think that going back and re-watching the episode, there's just so many more minor details that kind of do become more major later on. And mm-hmm. I think, and then there's like, there is a lot of stuff that they kind of, you can tell that either they've forgotten or they've cleaned up to a certain extent. And one of them is, is John's relationship with his father. I find it really interesting that the first time we meet John's dad, because of how much of a shadow he casts, in 
the you know just because John begins addressing all of his journal you know essentially audio journals to his father so clearly he cares about his father and then in later seasons we we see their relationship develop you know even if it's just John's you know emotional relationship with his imaginary father <laughs> or a fake father but that first interaction is almost super painful to watch, you know, because of how different mm-hmm. they are and how you can tell that even when John's father is being trying to be proud of his son, John just is it rankles John. Yeah. And how, you know, the, the storytelling back and forth between them, you know, clearly you have like back in my day, son. Jack has that moment where he's like, they would never have stood for that or allowed that, you know, that whole get off my lawn kind of tone. And then later on when it's like, you know, we used to use guts in the seat of our pants to, you know, to do these things. <laughs> and it's very much a a well-worn back and forth between them because, you know, John's finishing his dad's sentence, essentially, because mm-hmm. the story has been told over and over again. And so you can see that those I guess, grooves that they fit in, you know, like all family relationships, like me and my siblings, we get back into a certain frame of mind and suddenly we're 10 years old again, you know, and that's that kind of family dynamic that never, never really changes to a certain extent that you see kind of playing out here. And it's, and you're right, it's not really a comfortable one because here John is doing something new and surpassing his dad in a certain extent, but his dad at the same time is not letting him forget what he did in the past. Mm-hmm. What's weird about it as an outsider is that you immediately empathize with John because, you know, that feeling of not being the person your parents are and not really living up to your parents' expectations. Like, I think that's a very familiar feeling. But like I said, it's also the words that are actually coming out of his father's mouth are very supportive. Like, his dad is literally telling him, I'm proud of you, son. And John is hearing that. And I think even as an audience, we're kind of hearing that as, yeah, but you're just, you know, some smart scientist. And back in my day, it was all the eggheads that were doing all the science. And, you know, the, you know, the astronauts were real heroes. And, and it's just this, I don't know, it's really uncomfortable. And I think that when John gets flung into this other universe and he has to wield a gun... And we're never really given the impression that he had to before, because I don't think he was military. I think he was just always... No, no. Was he military? No, I don't think so. I don't think... I think he, you know, he went to grad school. He applied to the astronaut corps, which is definitely not a military organization by any means. And once he's in the astronaut corps, he did science. I mean, that's what they do when they're not flying in space, right? Mm -hmm. At least I assume so. So... So here he gets to design his experiments and then go on a couple of shuttle missions and keep working on the science he wants to be doing and then finally getting it funded and built. I mean, that's that's no that's pretty large potatoes there to to get done and deemed worthy enough to do an experiment with. And that's a very, very big scientific goal. And so I don't think he's ever held a gun unless he went hunting or something on his own at some point in his life as a kid or a young adult. But. He's definitely not in the military. And the other, you know, kind of building off what you were just saying, like all the eggheads, it kind of sets John up as being that nerd. You know, the whole, the machismo of the, the military commander or whatever that we often see in a lot of science fiction where it's, you know, very militarized based. I mean, look at Stargate, you know, that's a military team going off and doing things, right? They're, they're doing, 
you know, their exploration in the context of a military unit. But here it's, it's very much the science and the nerd who's going off. Yes, he still has a chiseled jaw, but he's kind of like the nerd audience stand in for going off into this, this other galaxy or other part of the galaxy rather. And maybe that's, you know, kind of speaks to all his hope and, you know, he's meeting aliens for the first time and he wants to say hi and (laughs) and just, you know, that, that all encapsulates like the nerd dream of going off to, to discover new things. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, that's a really good point about him, you know, him representing nerd, not, not necessarily nerd culture, but him clearly being a scientist, him clearly being intelligent, because I think Maybe one of the reasons Farscape was so refreshing for me when I started watching it was that it was kind of a contemporary, not really in the first few seasons, but it became contemporary with, you know, Stargate Atlantis, with Eureka. And I mean, it definitely was a contemporary with Stargate, you know, the original Stargate. It's just interesting because in those shows, the premise is kind of, hey, no, it's okay if you don't know that much. You're still just as smart as the scientists with four PhDs. You know, the I mean, you have these characters that, yes, they're intelligent cops or they're intelligent pilots, but they're not scientists. And they always end up solving scientists' problems. And I Mm -hmm. think that Farscape is kind of the first TV show that really inverted that. Or not even inverted that, but it just kind of addressed the fact that most of the problems that John solves are either scientific or a little bit military. Sometimes they're diplomatic. But we're always supposed to understand that he was very intelligent to begin with. His fish out right. of waterness isn't like him being, oh, the only Joe Blow in a town full of brilliant people or the only Joe Blow in a, you know, in a military base in a different star system you know, full of brilliant people. He's actually very smart. Yes. And has those kinds of tools that his, you know, the scientific tools at his disposal with his background knowledge um, and problem solving ability, which is actually, it's funny you say that because from the earth perspective, he is all those things. And yet one of the first things that Dargo says to him after throwing him into a wall when they're in the the center chamber eating is like, this one, this one is some sort of mentally deficient. <laughs> because at the other end of the galaxy, he because he's a fish out of water, because he doesn't know the basics about, you know, lights and ships and, you know, probably not even how to use a toilet over there. It's like, okay, he must be some sort of idiot. and. Why is he even breathing? I can't believe he's breathing. This is essentially how it goes. And that's one of the other really great refreshing things about Farscape, especially in season one, is John is constantly playing catch up. He is learning about this entire new paradigm and new place and alien species who have different worldviews or universe views. And he was constantly looked upon as the backward, and why are you even here? I can't believe you're alive. And it's really kind of hilarious to watch. <laughs> yeah. One of the quotes I, I pulled out at the beginning was when we were, because we talked about what some of our favorite quotes are. And it's the same scene when Zan's asking, you know, is there a peacekeeper present at this commerce planet? And John just gives her this look as like, I don't know. I wish I did. And that kind of just sums him up for like the first season of he has no clue what's going on. He wishes he did. He bumbles along. Mm -hmm. 
it's really just so much of the theme for not just the first episode, but like the first season really is this idea of random things happening to John. Do you know what I mean? Like bad things happen to John, but they're more random things that happen to him. Like random things that end up being bad things happen to John. And I think that in later seasons, it becomes like actively bad things happening to him because he gains villains, you know. But I think in the first season, just so much of their plot is, I mean, yes, them running away from Crace, which we can get into, but also just randomness, like the sheer chaos. Well, you say that running away from Crace, but let's, well, let's talk about that for a sec, because the whole reason he's running from Grace was a complete accident. You know, that random accident you're talking about of his ship being in the wrong place at the wrong time. He gets clipped by um, Grace's brother's prowler. He survives, but Grace's brother dies. And that's what starts him having to run away from Grace. So that's just another act of randomness that kind of gets this whole thing that drives the plot and drives the first season, essentially. Mm-hmm. I think that the weirdest part for me of the whole Grace plotline is how much Crace actually blames John for his brother's death. Because on the one hand, yes, his bro- it's, it's essentially like a deer getting in front of a speeding car. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And Crace, wait, even when he talks about it, it makes me wonder if at one point the script had said something different about the positioning of the... Um, you know, and then the CGI guys had just done something else. If only because he's like, you charged his prowler in your white death machine. And I'm like, he was like facing the opposite direction. Like that was, even if you're a little bit overwhelmed yeah, with yeah. emotions, that was my, that's I think my one thing about the whole craze plotline is that I wish they had worked a little bit harder to make it seem that it plausibly could have been John's fault. Like if maybe the prowler had appeared actually immediately in front of him or if the prowler had actually hit his ship causing it to go off course because just as a viewer you're like what did we watch the same cgi (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah and and the other thing i mean i'll be honest watching the craze scenes this time through was so cringeworthy because it's so over the top and Grace is just like raw, 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 with a really like sour, serious face on it. And I love Lanny Tupu, I do. But at the same time, it's just like, are you kidding me? <laughs> it's just so cliche and so military commander has a personal stake. And I don't know, it just, it just felt, it still feels just like one of the most contrived reasons for anyone to go after John. And this, I think, one of the weakest parts of the episode and even the early seasons. I mean, where it goes and what they end up doing with it is, you know, amazing. Like how they salvage, mm-hmm. how, you know, how they salvage the Craze plot line is incredible. But at the same time, where it begins right here is just, oh, not quite dying of embarrassment, but pretty close. Yeah, I definitely think that, yeah, Craze is in... In a plethora of very interesting, deep, and downright evil villains, Crace is a weird place to start. Yeah. <laughs> Crace is like, Crace is probably the most straightforward of the villains. And also, yeah, he's just, his scenes are, he's eating the scenery. He's literally just like chomping on scenery, and everybody else is pretending that it's normal acting, I guess. <laughs> 
Um, but speaking of the peacekeepers, yeah. I have to point out that peacekeepers is probably just the ultimate awesome name for what they actually are. Because they're literally like the dark order. They're flat out evil. Not like evil, but they're flat out. I don't know. What am, what am I looking for? Like military overlords. And they are called the peacekeepers. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah if you want an analogy, I think one of the later episodes, um, John describes them as space Nazis. Or maybe that's the term fandom came up with. A while ago, I don't remember when. I've been in fandom way too long. But the analogy that I think actually works better on Earth is to the Roman Empire. Hmm. Because... They are a huge military organization. They have a foothold over all these other species. Just like the Roman Empire, you know, expanded all the way across Europe and it had, you know, outposts in all these places and were the de facto government for, for the continent. And I think that's kind of how I see the peacekeepers. Finger in every pie, spread out, dominant. They play politics in everybody's lone local region. You know, they're not out to exterminate people. They are keeping the law, but there's a very harsh very harsh law that they are keeping. And I think that as we see the number of different pies that their fingers are in, like the number of different worlds and the number of different societies that they have effectively put down and effectively are the overlords of, I think Aaron begins to make more sense. And I think Crace begins to make less sense. A commander at his level that's commanding essentially an entire fleet wouldn't ever just leave, you know, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's also just, you know, inherent in the world building of the early season. They're still, you know, season one, first half, they're still definitely finding their feet. I mean, this is true. Anyone you talk to who's tried to convince someone to watch Farscape, they're like, all right, just get through the first half of the season. Don't worry about it. And then you'll hit the ground running because a lot of that comes out. You know, that solid world building comes much later. Mm-hmm, for certain. So we've met Crace, our, our villain of season one. Let's go back to meeting the rest of our intrepid crew. So the three prisoners who have escaped from, actually, if you actually want to count, there's really five prisoners that we're talking about. You have mm-hmm. Dargo, who is our warrior stereotype. You have Zan, who is our priest stereotype. You have Rigel, who is the deposed ruler. And you have... Moya and Pilot, the ship and the pilot that um, is a symbiote with her, that flies her, or helps fly her, who are also actually prisoners of the Peacekeeper. I mean, that whole first introduction is about them getting this collar off of Moya so that she can run away. And there's this interesting moment when Dargo is actually helping get off the, get off the collar, where he's incredibly angry, and he's almost about to go into like one of his rages, and he just starts yanking out wires. Or, I mean, they're not technically wires. They're, like, essentially veins, or there would be a better analogy. Yeah, nerve synapses, I think Pilot said. So he's yanking stuff out, and Pilot is screaming at him that, like, you know, that's not doing anything. You're not, you know, you're not touching it. He's like, well, I'm just going to keep pulling until I do. And then he pulls out something, and the collar comes off. And he, like, it's like he looks at, and this just goes to the actor, because this is clearly not something that's in the script. But he just looks at these body parts essentially that he's holding and there's this pause where it's not quite regret because it got him what he wanted but he also is kind of realizing that he may have taken it a step too far yeah which as we learn later when they're out of iridescent it's not iridescent but they like switch two of the vowels i'm not gonna be able to say it from memory um iridescent 
fluid, which is one of the major fluids that Moya needs to keep her, her systems functioning and basically fuel her engines. That has one of the results of him ripping out all of those all of those conduits. Yeah, it was it's actually kind of interesting in that scene because Zan, at the same time that he's ripping stuff out, she's doing all these console things, doing coding sequences, and he's actually never explained which one of them is the one who figures out how to get the collar off. Mm-hmm. Was it the code that you know Zan was trying to get in, or was it actually just ripping off the connection and doing a basically a man you know hardware versus software question? And it really doesn't matter, but it's also kind of indicative of how how Farscape does some things. They don't always explain what's going on. They just throw you in the middle and expect you to keep up as the audience. And to a certain extent, it doesn't matter. The point is that they get free and they starburst out of there and taking along a stray prowler pilot who gets caught up in their wake, who is the radiant Aaron Sun, who I think we should talk about now because she's the best. Oh my god, Aaron Sun is literally the best. <laughs> she is totally the best. I think like, I've had a girl crush on her for like 20 years. <laughs> well, and okay, fundamentally, Farscape, 15 years. 15 years I know, 99. Ugh, wow. So, um, so fundamentally, Farscape is about John Crichton. I don't think anybody's going to argue with that you there. But I think Aaron Soon has a character arc that is way more interesting. Because John's character arc tends to be a lot of him reacting to things that happen to him but Aaron's is and I I don't really know how to like more fully describe it than that quote you know they're about to leave Moya and she's like well I'm going to disable Moya I'm going to and so that when you know when the peacekeepers get here it'll just be there sitting for them and John is essentially saying hey they're escaping prisoners they really haven't done anything to hurt us they fed us we don't have to destroy their shit destroy their chances of getting away and she's like I, I don't know what you're talking about and he's like I'm talking about compassion and she like she literally has no idea what that is and she describes herself as she's like oh yes I know that emotion and I don't like it <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's her starting point is you know any kind of good feeling any kind of thinking about others if it's not for her mission if it's not for the peacekeeper mission she's like not not having any of it at least at this point in the premiere Mm -hmm. and that point and then the second that point in the episode and then the second point in the episode that really starts her on her journey and i would actually you could actually argue as a compassionate moment she has is when she speaks up for john when Crace comes to pick them up they escape, they go to the commerce planet, Dargo, Zan, and Rigel are trading for the stuff Moya needs, and meanwhile, on their own, Aaron has contacted the Peacekeeper fleet, and she's saying, okay, we're here, pick us up, I've got the human with us, or human with me. And so Krace comes, and the first thing he does after arresting Dargo again is, you know, accuse John of killing his brother, and is clearly angry, and is clearly not going to listen to any kind of reason. And this is where Aaron, the good soldier, actually speaks up in John's defense. And it's such an interesting thing because you would have thought, you know, from her previous conversation that she would have no interest at all in helping him. Like he helped her get out of the cell, but he's this weird, you know, alien species who's an idiot and doesn't know what's going on and kind of helpless. And she just wants to go home. Mm -hmm. But here she is speaking up for him. And 
I, I wonder if that conversation she had where John says, you know, compassion is putting yourself in someone else's shoes and empathizing with them. Like she knows what's going to happen to him. She knows what happens to unclassified life forms. I mean, Crace basically just said, I'm going to dis- dissect you. And there's that glimmer of maybe she doesn't even know what's going on with her. Maybe she doesn't even think about it. It's just this impulse to say, no, he didn't do it on purpose. It was an accident. He doesn't deserve this. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, then leads to her getting kicked out of the peacekeepers. Yeah, and again, we see other characters, John putting that on other characters in future episodes. Like, John, I think, is one of the is one of the re- characters that's really good at getting to people's moral core. And I know the show later kind of tries to be like, no, she was always a little bit special, blah, blah, blah. I think that fundamentally, that's what makes Farscape really interesting for me, is that rather than being Picard or, you know, being Kirk and kind of going somewhere and being like, oh, isn't this cool, but we're going to completely respect it. And we're going to not really, we're going to respect the prime directive of not changing other people. John does change other people like that is what he does and he looks at her and he essentially tells her like you can be more than this and he allows people the human growth that they don't necessarily see being in their situation yeah yeah oh my goodness you can be more the the quote that launched a thousand ships right I've been yeah, bred but, since uh, birth. But no, I, that's a really great point about about John being the catalyst for change in others. The other thing, this is the other great thing about Farscape is it's also an inversion of the gender roles, because you know normally you have your stoic soldier who's the man, and then you have the woman who is the scientist who's plucky and gets them in touch with their feelings because she's in touch with their feelings. And on Farscape is completely reversed. John's the one who understands feelings and is okay with expressing them and wants others to express them and and be more than their, you know, their hard exteriors. And Aaron is your closed off soldier. And she really is closed off. I mean, you have these little glimpses starting out, but it's a process for her. And that's one of the beautiful things about her story arc. And it's, it's very much, very much an inversion of that trope of who is bringing what to the table in this relationship. Mm -hmm. Also, while we're talking about you can be more, that whole scene when they're being put taken into the lockup and getting handcuffed and processed and what, probably one of my favorite quotes of the episode. John distracts the guards with the Yuri Gargarin puzzle ring, gets his hands on a little small little stun blaster of some sort, and then he gets up and he gets everybody on their defensive, all the guards, and he says, freeze, or I'll fill you full of little yellow boats of light. And it's just so indicative of him trying to be this macho thing and quoting, you know, John Wayne or somebody, and then he has no idea what he's doing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I just love that moment. Well, and it's so John. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's so... You can tell that on one hand, I think he's almost mimicking his father. Like, it's something his father would do to be like, to like grab the gun and, you know, not be taken prisoner. And But at the same time, it's also so John. And I think that that's that balance we were talking about earlier of John kind of fundamentally being different than his father. It is an interesting inversion, I think. Because yeah. Aaron, had she gotten the gun, probably would have just shot them. Like, not yes. just shot at them. She would have shot, shot them dead. Them. Yeah. yeah. And and John is kind of the one that's like, well, we, I mean, we don't need to shoot them. They're just guards. One of the things you wanted to talk about, or you wanted to talk about, was Pilot. But also, yes. 
I think the episode leaves us in this interesting place with Pilot because we as viewers have seen Pilot as an actual creature because we've seen him in his environment, you know, the darkness surrounded by DRDs. Um, but John at the end, he's like, Pilot, you know, that blue transparent guy. And we don't really know yet if John has even met Pilot. And I thought that was just interesting. Yeah. He, I don't think he has at this point. He's only seen him on the clamshell. Mm -hmm. I think we get the audience gets a couple shots of him in his den. But yeah, he hasn't really seen him yet. So he hasn't met Pilot. He just barely knows that Moya is a living ship. And how awesome is that? Like, that's one of the best things about Farscape is that they are on a biomechanoid leviathan. I'm going to get all technical and lovey here because Moya is my girl. But she's a living ship. She's alive. She's part of this journey with them. She was just as much a prisoner as the rest of them. And then she's escaping, too. And it's just kind of beautiful that it's, you know, everyone in science fiction it likes to anthropomorphize their ships, you know, calling her her. And people, you know, you can make an argument that Jim Kirk has his own relationship with the Enterprise. But here it's a real relationship. It's like a real creature with real feelings and real wants and needs and desires. And the crew becomes part of her family with them. And it's just this really great thing. And just, we don't get to see it very much here in the premiere, but it's become so central to the rest of Farscape. And I just love that. I think, And I think that's a good point too, about Moya being a living being. Um, because I think that does end up affecting a lot of the things they do. Like that moment earlier where Dargo kind of had to realize that essentially he was ripping out someone's nerves, you know, even, mm -hmm you know, that moment. And also just the architecture. Like Farscape is so good at visuals. I mean, we mentioned the CGI earlier, which was really good for like TV in the late 90s. I mean, you look at the CGI and, you know, Sharknado, sci-fi's current, current whatever, and the CGI in Farscape. And it's, it literally looks like Farscape was made, you know, five years ago and Sharknado was made 15 years ago. It, it really stands up to the test of time. And I think the other part of that is not just the CGI, but because this was a Jim Henson production, the puppetry, you know, is incredible. And because it's live action puppetry, I mean, if you haven't seen Farscape and you're listening to this because you haven't seen Farscape, which I don't know why you, you would be doing that. But if you haven't seen it, think of Yoda in the original Star Wars movie. He's like, a, he's a puppet. He's a physical thing that they can touch and interact with. And Rigel and Pilot and um, many of the creatures they encounter on planets and stuff are really tangible tangible beings and puppets that the cast can interact with and it changes how the light happens it changes this whole feeling to it that really gives this an alien flavor i mean that's the other thing i fell in love with about farscape is it looks really alien from the sound design to the lighting to the puppets to the creativity that they do with the design of all the alien species and they do a, a lot of alien species and it's not just masks it's like full-on bodysuits for a lot of these or even mm -hmm. even traders who are just you know the one that Rigel interacts with is like 12 feet tall and has mandibles and everything and it's just going going wild and I really love that about Farscape is the aesthetic mm -hmm. yeah and and that's definitely when you look at where they set different things like Moya is like dim lighting curved lines you feel like you're inside a whale you feel you can feel like even though they're they're technically not her ribs, like all the all of Moya is just this curved structure. And you're really given the impression that even though it's by, you know, mechanoid, you know, biomechanoid, that it is her her actual body, that they're in a creature. 
And then you look at the contrast in terms of the peacekeeper command carrier, and it's all really well lit with like, flor- you know, not they're not fluorescent, obviously, because the lighting, I'm sure, in fluorescence is not good. But the bright light, functional light, actual computers, you know, and that um, and then even the Commerce Planet, which literally looks like Blade Runner, but in a different universe. And it. It just gives everywhere that they are not only a very real feel, but it gives it a very distinct feel. All right. So what was your favorite moment of the episode? I think my favorite moment is <laughs> is probably is now and forever will be Aaron kicking John's butt <laughs> when they first meet. <laughs> <laughs> followed closely by followed closely by though John's yeah. complete disillusionment immediately upon meeting aliens. <laughs> Poor John. <laughs> Love you, Betty. Poor John. Yeah, he just gets everything. I mean, he sums it up saying, you know, close encounters my ass. Because, yeah, everything that he ever thought about aliens is immediately turned turned on its head. If I had to pick one moment from, from the pilot that I love, or the premiere that I love, that was one of them. But the other one is when, at the end, when they're escaping the command carrier, and John pulls out a Sharpie from his flight suit, which I'm absolutely certain he would have had. He's like, I need paper. And everyone's looking at him like, what the fuck is paper? And then he goes and writes <laughs> on the floor the math, math math he needs to get them away. And I just love that because like, he's going to do what he needs to do. He's got an idea. It's the single-mindedness. He's not going to let the lack of anything get in his way. And then after that, it's just like, okay, I need you to do this. Why don't you do it, Dargo? And Dargo's like, I'm not a pilot. And he's like, okay, fine, Erin, you do it. You're the trained pilot. And she's like, no. And so it's this whole, like, no one wants to do anything. They're all like, what the hell are you doing? You learn an idiot on the writing on the floor. Who does that? And it's just, it's just this great thing. But it also is what gets them away. And that's like, here is John redeemed in their eyes, finally, as being less than completely useless. Yeah, I think, and I think that moment of him actually getting to practice his science experiment, which I think is, you know, obviously how the episode comes full circle. But, you know, that moment of like, oh, yeah, my science works. <laughs> Bye. Yeah. <laughs> I think that I will be honest, I've, as many issues as we both have had with this pilot, namely poor Crace and his, you know, scenery eating, acting, and also the like poor Crace and his like poorly CGI'd brother's death, you know, like just turn the shuttle around, make it look like it actually was charging. <laughs> um, <laughs> I would still give this episode easily a five out of five. It draws you oh, in. Yeah. I don't know how you watch this episode and don't want to know what happens next. Yeah, this is definitely a five out of five for me. This is this is what sets the bar of what this show could be. And it just keeps going from here. Thanks for listening with us. We're having a lot of fun with this so far. We hope you are having fun listening to us. And we will talk to you later.